This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. It happens to all of us. Right before an important presentation, the printer runs out of ink. Brother Inkvestment tank printers help put a stop to this and can literally change the way you ink. With your choice of one or two years of ink included in box, Inkvestment Tank helps eliminate the expense and hassle of frequently buying and replacing ink cartridges. Learn more at changethewayyouink.com. Faculty and students at Rochester Institute of Technology recently built a robot fish. Why? Because it could lead to a new wave of prosthetics. Now we're all hooked. At RIT, the creative team of engineers is on to something life-changing. Learn more about the project at rit.edu kick. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Of all the hotly contested races in the 2018 midterms, none attracted more attention than the Georgia gubernatorial election that pitted Democratic nominee and former minority leader of the Georgia House of Representatives, Stacey Abrams, against Republican candidate Brian Kemp, who also happened to be Georgia's Secretary of State, the very person in charge of overseeing that election. On election night, Kemp declared victory by a narrow margin of 1.4%, but Stacey Abrams wasn't ready to give up yet alleging widespread irregularities and voter disenfranchisement in poor and minority communities. The election results were eventually upheld after a 10-day recount, and while Abrams then suspended her campaign, she refused to concede defeat. If her critics hoped that she'd quietly fade away, they've been sorely disappointed. The Georgia recount turned Abrams into a national celebrity and one of the most popular Democrats in the country. She recently delivered a stirring Democratic response to President Trump's State of the Union address, receiving wide praise for her humanity and straightforwardness, in contrast to what many saw as Trump's stiffness and insincerity. Since then, the buzz around what she'll do next has reached a fever pitch as she weighs a gubernatorial rematch in 2022 against more immediate possibilities of running for the U.S. Senate or President in 2020. And now, just a few days ago, she had a private one-on-one lunch at the invitation of Joe Biden, leading to widespread speculation that Biden wants to launch his own campaign for president by announcing Abrams as his running mate. No sooner had the rumors of a Biden-Abrams ticket taken flight than a deluge of high-profile Democrats began pleading with Stacey Abrams to decline the number two spot and run for president herself. Based on her most recent statements, like, I think you don't run for second place, and if I'm going to enter a primary, I'm going to enter a primary, she certainly is beginning to sound like a candidate for the top office. But if political pundits and predictors want to get to the heart of what drives Stacey Abrams, they'd do well to read her engaging and instructive book, Lead from the Outside, How to Build Your Future and Make Real Change, now available in paperback. And on today's podcast, I'll talk with Stacey Abrams about where she comes from, how she got there, and where she's going next. We'll talk about that private lunch with Joe Biden, what was discussed, and what issues she'd campaign on if she does run for VP or even president in 2020, as well as how this self-proclaimed introvert is handling all that national attention. She discusses making history as Georgia House Minority Leader and then as her party's nominee for governor, 
why she refused to concede defeat in the gubernatorial race, and why she believes widespread voter suppression tipped that election for her opponent. Then she explains the careful balancing act of being a woman of color in a position of power, why minority politicians undergo way more financial scrutiny than their white colleagues, and how the Republican Governors Association tried to chastise her, and by implication all women, for daring to seek higher office. Plus, Stacy reveals herself as a Star Trek Next Generation super nerd and what the show can teach us about outsider politics. She shares her personal philosophy of work-life Jenga, talks about moonlighting as a successful romance novelist, and opens up about finally making time for dating and a love life of her own. Coming up with Stacey Abrams in just a moment. Stacey Abrams spent 11 years in the Georgia House of Representatives, seven of them as minority leader, before becoming the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia in 2018, the first black woman to become the gubernatorial nominee for a major party in the United States, and winning more votes than any other Democrat in the state's history. She has founded multiple organizations devoted to voting rights, training, and hiring young people of color and tackling social issues at both the state and national levels. She's a lifetime member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the 2012 recipient of the John F. Kennedy New Frontier Award. Now Stacey Abrams' book, Lead from the Outside, How to Build Your Future and Make Real Change, just came out in paperback with a new preface. And if you believe the political buzz around her, she just might have her pick of running for the Senate, the vice presidency, or even president in 2020. Stacey Abrams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're just a busy, busy woman. Your name just (laughs) keeps popping up all over the place these days. Do you take a little bit of pleasure in disappointing those critics who were probably hoping that you were just going to quietly disappear after the governor's race in 2018? I, I, I like to say that I learned how to not win very, very well. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that's one of the most important things, I think. You know, it may surprise some folks, but in your book, you confess to being an introvert at heart. Are, are you comfortable with the amount of national attention that's being focused on you since the governor's race? I appreciate what it can help me do. Yeah, but it is sometimes overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, look, I <laughs> I, sure. I I truly am uh, someone who prefers to be with smaller groups of people around me, not mm-hmm. so much attention. Uh, but I am deeply grateful for those who are energized by what we're doing, who are engaged, and who stand to benefit by our success. And part of the trade-off is that yes, I may be an introvert by nature, but the work I think needs to be done requires. That I mimic extroverts and try to do what they do. Yeah. <laughs> Is that your secret? Because you, you say in college you were very shy. So I have to assume that all the glad handing and the stuff that comes with politics doesn't come that naturally to you. Huh? So I, I'm not shy. I've okay. always been reserved. Okay. Well, and here's here's the distinction. My younger sister and I fight about this. Shy presumes that you're afraid of people. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I'm less afraid and more just it's not my natural comfort zone. Okay. And I they describe introversion as being whether you're uh, animated by people or whether they take energy. Mm-hmm. It takes some energy for me. Uh, and the glad handing and the gregariousness that you usually find with extroverts, that doesn't come natural to me. I can do it, and I've learned how to be better at it. 
but left to my own devices, I will watch a Star Trek marathon. <laughs> yeah, I know that you're a huge Star Trek fan. <laughs> uh, at some point in your book, I think you say that the Android data yes. sort of inspired a certain political philosophy of how minorities should approach uh, trying to get ahead in politics. Huh? Yes. Can you tell that story? So there is an episode uh, where they are playing war games and uh, sort of a subplot Data the Android is challenged to a game of stratagema against this brilliant uh, man named Kolrami. And Kolrami beats the Android at what is essentially a computer game, which should not happen. And everyone tries to figure out how could Data lose. Data disengages himself. He runs diagnostics. He finally decides that he's just not worthy of being you know, this, this Android because he could lose to a human. And the captain, Captain Picard, basically says stop beating yourself up and figure out how to do this because this is your job and when data re-engages he plays Kolrami again and when you see him this time Kolrami gets more and more frustrated and he finally throws up his hands and he, he forfeits the game and they ask him like data did you you know write a new program like how did you how'd you beat him this time and he said Kolrami's mission was to beat me mm-hmm. my mission was to stay in the game and when you want to stay in the game you will pass up obvious opportunities in order to lengthen your potential. And if you're in the minority, you're not always going to be able to win. In fact, it's typically in the title that you're not going to have a sufficient amount of resources. What I took from that is that the job is to just redefine what victory looks like. And sometimes victory is simply outlasting the other guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just got to be the last one standing. Exactly. (laughs) Now, in the last week or so, you have met with both Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden. Not bad, I have to say. (laughs) Uh, I know that Schumer wants you to run for Senate in Georgia, and Biden, if the rumors are to be believed, might want you to be on the ticket as his running mate uh, probably sooner than later. Can you tell us anything about what you and Biden talked about at that lunch? I've met with... Uh, more than eight of the, I think a total of eight, maybe nine, if you include a phone call, folks running for president, those who have declared and who haven't declared. This year? Oh, for, for 2020. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm pleased to meet with everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conversation with Vice President Biden was fantastic. We had a really good conversation. This was not part of our conversation. Okay. So being a running mate never came up. We talked about the responsibilities of running for office. We talked about what are the two passions for me? One, fighting voter suppression, and two, mm-hmm. fighting for Georgia and making sure Georgia is a battleground state. Those okay. are, and we had other conversations, but the rumors are not true. Okay. The rumors are not true. They're not. Uh, have you been a, a, at all heartened by the number of people who have actually come out, including, I think, an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, don't take it if it's on the <laughs> table. Don't take it, Stacy. I appreciate the passion and energy that people have around my future, mm-hmm. and I hope they still feel that way once I decide what that future is supposed to be. Yeah. Well, a couple of months ago, you became the first African-American woman to give the Democratic response to the president's State of the Union the contrast between you and President Trump could not have been more glaring. You know, <laughs> Trump, who is not very good when he's on a teleprompter, came off as very flat and lifeless and was trotting out war veterans and Holocaust survivors and everything but, you know, a basket of puppies. <laughs> you know? Then you came on and, you know, you just talk to people like a real human being about real things that matter to people's daily lives. Depending on what you decide to do next, would that be a pretty good preview of what a national campaign might look like? I I would argue that's how I've always operated, whether okay. I was running for student council or student you know, 
I ran for vice president of the student body at Spelman College, and I ran in part uh, campaigning for two-ply toilet paper for every student in the college. <laughs> Which, really? <laughs> yes, because certain dorms got one-ply toilet paper, and other dorms that were considered fancier got two-ply. I lived in a two-ply <laughs> dorm, but I had friends who were in one-ply dorms. <laughs> and for me, it was a real issue because... Why would why did we have that inequity? Yeah. But more importantly, you have to use more. And so it, to me, was an important issue. <laughs> Not life-changing, but critical. <laughs> and when I, ran for, when I ran for the legislature, I actually ran as a technocrat. So I was running against someone who'd been in office and someone else who was from that community. I couldn't argue that I had either of those experiences, but I understood how government worked. Mm-hmm. And so I let people ask me the most pedestrian questions, the most parochial things, because people, you're you're being hired for a job, and they need to know you know how to do that job. Mm-hmm. The job of giving the State of the Union response was a job of speaking for people who wanted the leader of their country to hear their worries, mm-hmm. but also to hear their aspirations. And I was asked to do it at a time where we had failed as a nation because that leader had used his political hubris to deny people paychecks, and that meant medicines. It meant having access to gas. It meant food on the table. I stood in a line handing out food to people who were protecting our country. They needed me to tell their story. And so no matter what I run for, I remember that I'm doing a job, and that job is speaking for people whose voices are often not heard. And I wonder if there's some significance to the fact that you were the first non-incumbent person to give the response to a State of the Union since the State of the Union began uh, being televised, or maybe even farther back than that. I'm not sure. I I believe I'm the first non-private citizen to ever give the State of the Union response. Yeah, I mean, given that the DNC could have picked an incumbent or could have picked someone who had just come on the heels of a big victory in 2018, uh, what do you think is the significance of that? Do you think maybe that where you're coming from appealed to the people who are probably feeling a little bit despondent and felt very defeated after 2016. You know, when Leader Schumer and Speaker Pelosi tapped me for it, I, I, I got the news from uh, Senator Chuck Schumer. What he said was that the, it was a unanimous decision uh, and he had the, it was his year to pick and he, he picked me. But what I took from the conversation and what I took from that moment is that yes, I had a very difficult campaign, one that was rife with irregularities and yeah. with voters, not only voter suppression, but with language that was deeply disheartening. I mean, I had an opponent who thought it was fun to aim a shotgun at a kid, to call, to say he was going to round people up in his truck and deport them, who dehumanized communities, who swore he would strip women of their bodily autonomy by passing the most restrictive abortion laws in the nation, who wanted to reinforce legislation that would harm the LGBTQ community. He was a man and he had a campaign that was about the exact same things we were seeing on a national level. And even though I did not become governor, my success in that campaign and how we transformed the electorate and engaged people, I think was part of what they wanted to see, which is we may be down, but we are not out, and their victories are temporary and ephemeral, but our successes can be permanent if we remember why we're doing it. Yeah, and even though in the end, uh, 
according to, I guess, the math of it, you lost by, I think, a, maybe a 1.4 points mm -hmm. or something like 1. that. Uh, you actually set a number of records yes. for a Democrat running in that state. <laughs> and after all the votes were tallied on November 16th, that's 10 days after the election, you gave what some called a non-concession speech. Yes. And in your book, you say that, quote, you refused to play the part because the system had been rigged. Why do you believe that the system had been rigged based on what you saw? Because I ran against a cartoon villain. I, I ran <laughs> really? against the secretary of state who yeah. at the time he was a candidate for governor huh. was still managing the election process. He was basically the <laughs> wow. referee, the scorekeeper yeah, and, and the team, the home team. Yeah. That's not only unfair, it is in consonant with what we call a democracy. Mm -hmm. And there were no systems to force him to stop. And he shockingly was able to win. But in his tenure as Secretary of State, he had he managed to purge more than 1.4 million voters. He led an administration of election supervision that closed 214 precincts. He intentionally reinstituted a racially discriminatory system that a federal judge had chided him for that, when applied, captured 53,000 people, 90% of whom were people of color, 70% of whom were black. He oversaw a system that saw one of the highest rates of rejection of absentee ballots. All of the things that you can think of that would constitute voter suppression, he put into one big basket and delivered in that election. So yes, it was rigged. I cannot prove empirically that I would have won every vote that was not cast. Yeah. And that's the hardest part, isn't it? You well, know, you, you'll just, there's no way that you'll ever be able to know whether you really won or not. We'll just never know. It's a pretty good guess. It's a pretty good guess. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, he purged yeah. about 600,000 right. right before he threw his name into the right. hat to run for governor. Right. And if you look at the, wow. the profile of those, they were unlikely to be Kemp voters. Mm -hmm. but, but let's put mm -hmm. that aside. My responsibility is not to go back in time and be the victor. My responsibility is to fight to make certain no one else has to question whether the fight was fair. Yeah. That is why I do this and that is why I refuse to concede because we have to get beyond this notion that by 11 p.m. on a Tuesday night, we know what has happened. We have to have a peaceful transfer of power, but sometimes that power transfer has to be delayed until we know that the process was right. And I know how passionate you are about voting rights. When the left talks about this sort of thing, they talk about voting rights and the right talks about voter fraud. When someone like President Trump makes accusations of election rigging and illegal voting, problems with phony voter IDs or the lack of voter IDs, uh, how do you interpret those words? Do you think he's deliberately trying to disenfranchise certain groups? Do you think there's a racist undertone to that? Yes. Yeah. Voter fraud is a lie. It does not exist. Typically what is called voter fraud actually tends to be voter confusion. We have a nation of 50 states where literally the democracy changes from state to state. What is lawful in one state, you can cross a border and suddenly what was perfectly reasonable for 25 years of your voting practice is now unlawful. What has been found by people on every side of the aisle who've really studied this is that voter fraud doesn't really occur. We have a voter problem. We don't have enough people voting. People aren't, you know, standing in line and putting on masks and, you know, sunglasses right. and wigs to vote more than once. <laughs> yeah. But we do have a voter suppression problem. And that has been baked into the DNA of our country. The difference is that when President Trump talks about voter fraud, what he is 
arguing are things that are made up. There is absolutely no evidence. And we know there's no evidence because he convened an expert panel right. that disbanded <laughs> because they people. could not find yeah. evidence. <laughs> Whereas we have reams of evidence of voter suppression. We know there's voter suppression because in the wake of the evisceration of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, 19 states immediately took actions that they had been prohibited from taking for 30 years. And it had the direct and completely predictable effect of diminishing the power of votes, particularly among communities of color and marginalized communities. That's why suppression is real. We know it happens because they're passing laws to make it so, solving problems that don't exist except for one, which is that people are voting who aren't going to vote for them. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Stacey Abrams when we come back in just a minute. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential. And it's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com KICK. Then, simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's BetterHelp.com KICK. And now, back to the show. I know that you've spent your entire career really fighting for underdogs and talking about fairness and inequality, and it all in many ways goes back to this turning point in your life that thrust you into politics when you were still in college. It came in the days following the Rodney King verdict when riots began in cities all over the country, particularly in Atlanta as well, where you were going to college. Um, what did you see in that moment that inspired you to start speaking out? I'd grown up in a family that was very committed to social justice. My parents made certain that we volunteered, but that we also protested. And so I wasn't new to engagement. I wasn't new to activism, but I was new to politics. As a student, I'd been attending city council meetings. And I knew I knew the city. I understood how city hall worked. But to watch city hall turn on my fellow students and on its own community and to presume bad action and not engage was enraging to me. I ended up going down to a town hall meeting with then Mayor uh, Maynard Jackson. We had a, a bit of a tete-a-tete, -tete, um, yeah. a little bit of a disagreement about his role as mayor. Yeah. And Is it safe to say that you let him have it? Would that be overstating I was things? polite, okay, but I was polite. insistent. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had the zeal of an 18-year-old freshman who knew everything. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I was I was right on a number of issues. I was wrong in other ways. But what I learned in that moment and what was reinforced before me six months later was that by calling him on it, he actually thought about it. And he invited me a few months later to become the first employee of the Office of Youth Services, a newly created office for the city. 
And that for me was really the point of entry because activism was something I knew. Activism was something I'd grown up with. But politics was different. And being at the city, being in charge of conversations about gang violence and youth engagement, that gave me a different perspective. But also it let me see that what for me was top of mind every day for people in charge and people in power, they weren't concerned about our communities. They they weren't waking up every day worried about what was going to happen. And that led me to understand that I had a responsibility to never forget that that's what I needed to wake up thinking about. And I think that that's when you also decided you wanted to be mayor of Atlanta and yes. follow in his footsteps, right? So a few months later, uh, I had a very bad breakup with someone who was mean to me and told me that I wasn't spending enough time with him. He probably was right. Uh, and he made these very uncharitable comments about my future life. And so I decided to show him that I was going to be in charge of everything one day and he would rue the day he was mean to me <laughs> yeah. and broke up with me. Uh, he would regret it. And yeah. so I... We're talking parking tickets and <laughs> getting pulled over <laughs> I, or what? No. Yeah. It was... I, I, I write very complicated novels. Yes, you um, do. <laughs> I'm aware. But in this case, I did a spreadsheet where I laid out all the things I wanted to accomplish. And one of them was to be mayor because that was the highest office that I thought I could attain in the near term where I could really make the change. And then I had some longer term ambitions. I, my spreadsheet took me out to the age of 68. But mayor was the job I thought about. And at a certain point, you decided that it wasn't the be-all, end-all. What changed your mind? I'm driven by a desire to address not only inequality, but poverty. Mm -hmm. uh, it is economically inefficient. It is immoral. And it's a waste of human capital. And I think it's solvable. For a long time, I thought it had to happen at the city level. But what I saw working for the mayor in 93 was different than what happened when I went back in 2003 as deputy city attorney. There I saw a mayor who put forward the very legislation I'd always wanted to see, and it was batted down by the state. The governor and the, the state legislature could say no and thwart the ambition of good. And that to me crystallized what I'd been thinking about, which was that, yes, the mayors are important, but mayors without good governors could not be effective as effective as they needed to be. And so it became my mission to be a governor. And I'd been thinking about it for a few years, but that really crystallized it for me. And that was when I decided I would run for governor of Georgia. And once you were running for governor of Georgia, there was actually an article for Cosmo where you got some flack after that from the Republican Governors Association for daring to say that you might actually want to run for president to yes. achieve the goals that you set for yourself. <laughs> Do you think a woman of color is discouraged from being open about their ambitions in a way that we don't do to, say, uh, Mitt Romney or Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders? In this, I think it's not just women of color. I think it's women writ large. And yeah. as a woman of color in particular, because for women writ large, you're discouraged. For women of color, it's almost seen as an absurdist idea. Hmm. And it's one of the reasons I am continuing to keep my name in and my ideas in the conversation about the presidency even now. But at the moment, political ambition for women is the one space where it, it is verboten to have this conversation. If you are in the mailroom and decide that one day you want to run the company, if you're a man, you are celebrated. That's a great thing to want to do. And yeah. if you're a guy who thinks you, you know, have a good hair day and you should be president, there you go. <laughs> if you're a woman, there's something unseemly about the ambition 
and you're supposed to hide it and like you know Gollum tending his pressures you're just supposed to <laughs> it's not supposed to be something that is seen and known yeah and I reject that because how can I ask other people especially other women to try for more when I'm afraid to say out loud what it is I want and I have to say I really feel for you because especially as a black woman in power you talk about the difficulty of the balancing act that you have to do in terms of not reinforcing negative stereotypes on both ends of the spectrum in fact in your own words you say you don't want to be shenane yes. but you also don't want to be uncle tom <laughs> how yes. do you walk that tightrope you have to be thoughtful and intentional mm. I, I part of what we would like to believe is so is that you walk into a space as your authentic self and as long as you are wholly who you are it's fine that's wonderful as long as you're walking into a room alone. The minute other <laughs> yeah. people are present, it's like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in, in physics. The mere <laughs> presence of something else transforms yeah. whatever it is you thought you had and who you are. And so, by the way, you're the first politician ever to bring up the Heisenberg <laughs> uncertainty. My, my nerddom runs deep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I digress. No, I, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> but the, the, the challenge then is. You have to recognize that part of your responsibility is to create space for others. Mm -hmm. And that means figuring out the parts of yourself that are so immutable as to be non-negotiable and then working on everything else. So I'm an introvert. I do not enjoy going out. I'm unlikely to remember to ask you how your day was or how your dog is. <laughs> so I have to practice and I have to create systems to communicate what you get from that. Because if I'm being superficial, my assumption is you just want me to talk to you. But what you're really asking for is do you see me and do you care about the things that, do you care about me and do you care about what's happening to me? That's what people want. Mm -hmm. And so I, my responsibility was to figure out how do I communicate my concern without changing who I am because I'm not gonna go to the bar and I'm not gonna stand around chatting because I'm not good at it and I don't wanna. The same thing is true in every other facet, whether you're in politics or in business or in the nonprofit space. It's figuring out what parts of yourself are so wholly yours that they cannot change, but then figuring out what parts of yourself you can adapt so that other people can get to know those parts mm -hmm. of you that are the most important. One of the rules that you preach in Lead from the Outside is don't deal with jerks. And that yes. was sort of your mantra in the private sector when you had a consulting group. But how do you get anything done in politics if you're not willing to do with, <laughs> deal with jerks? How so, does that work? So when I say jerks, part of it is don't deal with people who devalue and dehumanize okay. you. Do not deal with people who think that their, their personhood is more valuable mm -hmm. and relevant than your own. Which, given the state of politics these days, is about... 50% of the people you're likely you, to deal with. You would think. and, and <laughs> Or, okay, let's say about 30, 25, It's about 25% because yeah. part of what I found was that one of the reasons we describe people as jerks is because we don't bother to get to know them. Mm -hmm. We see a so superficial true. behavior and we presume that that behavior is directed at us. And so I made it my mission to not only get to know my colleagues and my members as leader, I had to get to know the other side and became good friends with someone who was so far to the right. He and I agreed that there was a Bible. We did not agree on the number of pages. We certainly didn't agree with everything that was in it. <laughs> yeah. But we could talk to each other. And in that space, while I still vehemently disagreed with him on almost every ideological principle possible, I understood that it wasn't that he was devaluing me. It was that he did not understand me. Mm -hmm. And my job was to make sure I understood him. 
And so I was very effective as leader in part because I could work with Democrats and Republicans. I could work on issues that I did not, where I did not hold common cause in part because I didn't let it become so personalized. Now, there were people for whom it was personal and I would not deal with them. One of them was someone who was actually a former Democratic colleague who switched parties and in the process did so by pushing anti-choice legislation that harmed women. And I made it my mission to make sure he never returned to the House of Representatives. I helped a Republican get elected in his stead because he was a jerk and he needed to go home. (laughs) Speaking of jerks, you know, the downside of getting all this attention that you've been getting over the past week is no sooner do you get mentioned alongside Biden's name, but then Fox News comes out questioning your nonprofit group's expenditures. You say in the book that you're kind of used to that sort of thing by now. Do you think successful women and minorities receive more financial scrutiny than a white man in a similar position? Absolutely. Uh, Not only do we receive more scrutiny, but we are also never given the benefit of, it's not even benefit of the doubt. We are presumed guilty. And part of the responsibility is one, to be able to disprove the assignation of guilt But the other is to not allow it to serve its purpose, which is to stop us from action. Mm -hmm. Fact, the group that filed the, you know, completely frivolous uh, claim with the IRS, they know I've done nothing wrong. Even the reporter acknowledges that there is no actual wrongdoing. But when you stir up questions, you start to stir up doubt. And that's the goal. The goal is to not only make others doubt me, it's to make me doubt myself Mm -hmm. and to doubt whether it's worth going through this. Well, as someone who had a conversation about my brother's drug use, my personal debt, and every other foible I have, by and large, you're not going to get me out of this because you reference what I know to be a false claim of private inurement. I'm a really good tax attorney. I know what we've- that's right, yeah. Yes. (laughs) I forgot about that. So I I know what we've (laughs) done. I know what we haven't done and what we have not done is not only not break any laws, but we've been the most transparent group. I announced what we were doing. I announced how we were going to do it, and we have a- raft of lawyers making sure we do it right every single day. I can imagine that your schedule is so hectic that it's hard to have a personal life. And, you know, you referenced (laughs) the old boyfriend who said that to you. And that was before you even got into politics. But uh, apparently you practice instead of work-life balance, something called work-life Jenga. Yes. (laughs) Maybe I'm misunderstanding the game, but in Jenga, sooner or later, the whole tower comes toppling down to yes. the ground, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And so does work-life balance. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. That, and that's the point. Work-life okay. balance is a lie. Mm-hmm. Nothing is that balanced. Nothing is ever so perfectly symmetrical that you can keep it all. You you cannot create that kind of equilibrium. Uh, we could talk about entropy <laughs> and chaos theory. <laughs> yes. The reality is work-life Jenga says you're going to build it up as strong as you can, and you're going to start pulling out those pieces knowing that it's going to fall apart. But the beauty of Jenga is you can just build a new tower. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the responsibility is to think through pulling out the pieces that you need, but be prepared for the whole thing to come crashing down and get ready to build the next one. Use the lessons you learned from the first time and get better at it. Okay. So when the tower comes down, that's not the end of the world. Of course not. Pick yourself up and start over. Exactly. All right. And eventually (laughs) learn to date. (laughs) Uh, Is that a consideration these days? It is. You know, look, I stopped dating a while ago because I wasn't good at it. And when I'm not good at stuff, I tend to just, I admit it and then I move on. Mm -hmm. I probably shouldn't have given up so easily. (laughs) And so (laughs) I am, I am trying to take more time to build that part of my, myself, because I think it enlarges you when you have to share your space, when you have to Mm -hmm. share your, your life with someone. And 
I would like to try it. That's something I have not tried before. Absolutely. So, someone you probably wouldn't agree with on most things. Uh, Dennis Prager once told me that the marriage and finding a partner is the most profound growth experience yes. of your adult life. So. Yes. I've never had to share books or television. Those yeah. are going to be hard things to do. Yeah. And speaking of books, I'm sure that the, the fans of your romance novels yes. will be happy <laughs> to know that you're uh, considering or looking, you're out there, you're available. I have done looking. a sufficient amount of, of, of theoretical investigation. Yeah. I have run simulations, and so now it's time (laughs) to try it myself. Before we go, as the political stakes get higher and higher for you, is romance writing put on hold for the time being? It is. I wrote my last novel, uh, published the last one in 2009. Uh, My publisher offered me a new contract, but I had just become Democratic leader, and there is no way to – I found that my work-life Jenga did not allow for that (laughs) piece because the jobs that I have before me, while – writing will always be a part of who I am and what I do that phase right now for me has to sit Um, I'll eventually get back to it and I've got a teenage superhero novel I'm ready to finish too I've got a lot of books out there Uh, but right now I'm working on fixing democracy all right well in the meantime folks can get your book lead from the outside how to build your future and make real change Stacey Abrams thanks so much for talking with me. thank you for having me this has been delightful Thanks again to Stacey Abrams for coming on the show. Order her book, Lead from the Outside, How to Build Your Future and Make Real Change on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Learn more about Stacey's voting rights group, Fair Fight Action, at fairfightaction.com and follow her on Twitter at at Stacey Abrams. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat or text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners can even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com kick and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already, and if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Gas News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.